Hey girls, boys, and folks beyond the binary. Welcome back to On The Mic Outspoken LGBTQ Storytelling. I'm Devlin Camp. Once a month, under normal circumstances, people from all over Chicago gather at Sidetrack, one of the city's longest-running gay bars, to hear stories told live by LGBTQ people. Now we're going back into the six years of archives to bring the stories to you. And until things return to normal, you can join us live on the first Tuesday of every month on Zoom. Check out the Sidetrack Facebook page for more info. Happy February, everybody. It's Black History Month, and this month, like every month, is a time to celebrate queer Black history. And today, we're bringing you some personal history from some fabulous Black storytellers in the Outspoken Archives. Let's get into it. Outspoken takes place the first Tuesday of every month at Sidetrack and is audio recorded in front of a live audience, typically. Each storyteller at Outspoken speaks from their unique perspective and their views do not represent those of other speakers, the hosts, Outspoken, or Sidetrack. And if you're enjoying the show while you're listening, hop on to Apple Podcasts to give us a rating or a little review to boost the show to some new listeners. Thank you. So our next storyteller is, uh, and we can We'll celebrate, don't worry. Uh, <laughs> Daryl Heller was born in South Carolina and went to high school and college in Charleston. He spent 20 years working as an activist in human service and community development before returning to school to get a PhD in history. He is currently the, dir- the director of the IU South Bend Civil Rights Heritage Center. Please welcome Daryl Heller to the stage. Thank you. Um, I want to tell you a story about Deborah and these seven dreadlocks. So I'm going to try to take a minute and see if I can just, well, I probably can't, but I'll see. I'll hold them. They, they, they have energy. Just, just trust me. This, the, the story will speak for itself. Um, so let me give you a little background about the context. Um, it's 1985. And in 1985, I was 24, um, and I was living in Washington, D.C., and was a member of a community called the Community for Creative Nonviolence. Um, it was an organization, uh, the organization is too strong of a word, it was a ragtag group of anarchists, <laughs> Marxist Leninists, Christian social justice people, trust fund kids who were slumming with the poor (laughs) before they went to their real lives to run their daddy's business. Um, But what we did is we worked with the homeless. And we um, ran soup kitchens. We did drop-in centers. We ran clothing rooms, um, um, food pantries. And it was really a social activist, social justice context. The community, as we called it, had squatted in 1983 in this shelter, well, a building that became a shelter. It was originally the Federal City College, part of the University of District of Columbia. And it was an abandoned building at the time that we occupied it. It was a block long, so just to get a sense, it was a block long, three full stories with a full basement. Um, It had been abandoned for many years at this point, so needless to say, it was in rough shape. Um, There were holes in the walls, meaning the toilets didn't work, 
But we squatted in it because there was not adequate shelter for homeless folks in the city, our nation's capital. Um, and we opened up the doors that winter, and on the coldest nights, we would be filled to capacity, which would be up to 1,000 people um, who, would, who would come into the building. At the end of that first winter, that first winter of squatting, we pushed, we advocated, we did civil disobedience, we lobbied, and we got the federal government to actually allow us to keep this building, and we turned it into a 24-hour shelter. And for many people who came in those doors, it was the only home they had, and the only home they certainly had for a long, long time. Um, it was there that I met Deborah. Um, Deborah came in there in 1984. Now, let me tell you about Deborah. Um, but it's, when I met her, she was probably in her early 30s. I was never quite sure of her age, but Deborah had gone to college for a couple of years and had dropped out and then had worked for the post office for, you know, off and on. And she had a girlfriend. Um, she had grown to be this fierce, creative lesbian. Um, and she lived with her girlfriend. But in order, she worked the night shift at the post office. And in order to cope, she had picked up a heroin habit. Um, at some point, she lost her job and her relationship came to an end. And at that point, um, oh, she had also by this time grown these amazing, beautiful dreadlocks that hung down to her shoulder. Um, but when she lost her job and her relationship broke up, the apart the, where she was living was actually her girlfriend's place, she was homeless and she decided to go home. She had nowhere else to go, so she went back to her family's um, place. Her mother, uh, her father had actually had a stroke a couple years before, before this, so her mother was the dominant voice force in her house. Um, and her mother was a good Christian woman. And her mother, when Deborah went back, you know, broke, poor, destitute, her mother's condition for her to move back home was that she cut her dreadlocks. Uh, her mother essentially said, we're not going to have any nappy-headed people living in my house. Um, and Deborah was desperate enough and down enough that she cut her dreadlocks. And she took them, she put them in the shoebox, and she kept that shoebox under her bed. At some point, and I'm not altogether clear on this, Deborah never really said it explicitly, but at some point her mother found out she was gay. I don't know if Deborah came out to her directly or she found out in some other way, but being the good Christian woman that her mother was, her mother related to her and told her that that was a sin and an abomination and that she had to leave. So Deborah left and spent some time bouncing around um, from friends, couches to couches, as long as that was okay. And then ultimately, she ended up at this shelter where I was working. And just, just one second, this is, this is a, a hard one. So when she got to the shelter, by this time, I had a good friend, um, Jan Zimmerman is her name. Jan, now Jan 
was this beautiful Jewish woman um, that I had known for a couple of years. We had organized, we were political allies, we'd done civil disobedience together, we'd gone to jail, we'd, we'd cooked stew for the soup kitchen. Um, and Jan had always, and Jan and I had been kind of off and on lovers, actually, full disclosure. Um, <laughs> but Jan had always been questioning her own sexuality. And so when Deborah came, she and Deborah became friends. Um, and Deborah moved into the shelter um, and began helping out with chores. Um, and Jan and I were, were, again, very close. And so Deborah and I became close through that relationship. Now, just again about this building, three stories. The first two floors were, well, the building, if you take it and divide it into thirds, two-thirds of the first two floors was a men's shelter. Um, the other third, first two floors, were, women's, were the women's shelter. The top floor, the third floor, was actually where the staff lived. And the staff and all of the crap that we didn't know what else to do with, it was actually also storage. Um, and the staff lived on the third floor. Um, there was about 25 to 30 of us. And the staff was actually this ragtag group of folks I mentioned before but also some homeless folks who had come in, decided that they wanted to be part of this community, and we embraced everyone. Um, and so at some point, many folks who had come in as guests will move up to the third floor and become part of that staff. Um, Deborah and Jan became close. Eventually, they became friends and partners and lovers. And Deborah eventually moved to the third floor as well. Um, and was part of that family of sorts. But when Deborah was bouncing around um, after her mother had kicked her out, after she had surfed couches for a while, and you know, at the, by the time she found herself at the shelter, her heroin habit had become even more intense. Um, that was fine by us. It was just, we were truly anarchistic, so we didn't judge anybody. Um, we all got high on something. That was part of how we, we, we survived. Um, but one evening, um, Sarah, who was actually my partner, my girlfriend at the time, we, we took a night off. And we had gone to a movie. Um, and we came back from that movie. And when we arrived back at the shelter, there were fire trucks out front. Uh, and these fire trucks, I mean, I mean, hook and ladder, the paramedics, the pumper, I mean, the, they, they had the entire fire station in front of the shelter. So we, Sarah and I thought that, oh, somebody stabbed someone or that, you know, that's disturbing, but it wasn't uncommon and it wouldn't have been surprising um, in that context um, with this group of folks. But we, when we went in to the men's side to find out what happened, the person at the front desk there said, Jan's girlfriend OD'd. And Sarah and I looked at each other and were like, do what kind of thing? And um, he said, yeah, Jan's partner OD'd. So Sarah, by around the, at this time, had gone over to the women's shelter to see if she could get more information, because that's all the information we had. And um, she came back, and apparently an ambulance had taken Jan and Deborah to the emergency room. Um, we asked where they went, but nobody knew. Um, this was a poor black lesbian, and even in that context, no one really bothered to follow up on where she was and what, how she was doing at that point. 
So I made a number of calls. I called 911. I tried to do a reverse um, call to see if they could tell me where the ambulance had gone. It took, a, it took several calls and bouncing around, but eventually I found out which emergency room they were in. And um, Sarah and I jumped into a car. We rushed to the emergency room. And there was Jan sitting by herself, rocking. And when we walked in, all she said was, Deborah's gone. And I learned later that Deborah had gone into a bathroom stall to get high and had OD'd. And Jan had found her there with a needle in her arm. That night, a bad batch of heroin had hit the streets. Over 30 people OD'd that night. Nine of them died. And one of them was Deborah. Um, and it was the saddest thing I've ever seen in my life, is Jan sitting there by herself. The next day, Jan went to Deborah's family's house. They lived in D.C. Dan, Deborah was from D.C. Jan went to Deborah's parents to offer condolences. And the mom said, get away from us. We don't want you part of this family. Jan, who was the person who Deborah loved the most and that Jan loved the most, had no input at all into any of the plannings for the funeral. Um, we found out when the funeral itself was. Um, and we, those of us who loved Deborah, went to the funeral. And when we entered the chapel, there was an open casket. And there was Deborah laying there, but not Deborah. The person laying there um, did not have dreadlocks. So I, I, I didn't mention, but when I met Deborah this time, she had begun drawing her, growing her dreadlocks again, and they were about yay long. And um, when we got to the church, the parents had had the dreadlocks cut, and she had nice little curls, and she had makeup which Deborah never wore, would have abhorred. Um, and what I remember is red lipstick and blue eyeliner. And she had on a dress that Deborah would have never been caught alive in. <laughs> um, and pearl, and a pearl necklace. And we suffered through that funeral. But Jan um, was very clear that we need to give Deborah a farewell and send her soul to a place that we need to organize something different. So we waited for the next full moon that we decided we would have a full moon ritual um, to send Deborah's spirit on to the next and better place. And so we printed flyers and we distributed them around the shelter and invited everybody who loved Deborah to come to Rock Creek Park in DC. If you've ever been to DC, Rock Creek Park is this huge long park that extends the full length of the city. Um, we found a, a place inside the park on this full moon, and it was a beautiful night, not a cloud in the sky to obscure this moon. And um, Jan had created a circle um, for folks to gather around. And we shared bread, we broke bread together, we drank wine, we sang to Deborah, and Jan, who had a very deep Wiccan spirit, taught us this song that we sang for Deborah, and the song went like this. 
We all come from the goddess, and to her we will return like a drop of water flowing to the ocean. And we say that over and over again. And at the end of the night, Jan, who the only thing, possession that she actually had from Deborah was the shoebox of dreadlocks that Deborah had taken with her when she left her mother's house. And she had taken it and brought it to the shelter and she had put it under her bed there as well. Um, so Jan inherited this box of dreadlocks and at the end of our gathering together, Jan put them in a bowl and invited everyone there to take whatever they wanted, any dreadlocks to be able to remember Deborah and to hold her spirit close. So I took seven. I took one dreadlock for each day of the week because we need to know and remember every day, every day that someone dies needlessly because simply, simply because of who they are. And I carry Deborah's spirits through these dreadlocks. So now when I think of Deborah, this very passionate, this beautiful, fierce dyke who taught me a tremendous amount. I had actually began growing dreadlocks myself at that time, and I would go to Deborah and check with her. And it was like, how do you think they're doing? Are, they, are these, these cold? Is this right? And, you know? and she would tease me about it, but, but she loved me, and I loved her. Um, so in her passing, um, I'm reminded of how easily black people die. Um, black people die from police violence. They die from poor health care. They die at the hands way too often of other, at, a, at the hands of other black people. But, but no one should die simply because of who they choose to love. And Deborah taught me that. Um, and so when I stand up and even here, I stand up and I think that black lives matter. And black lives matter means all black lives. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, Daryl Heller. Daryl, thank you. my wonderful co-host, Miss Kim Hunt. I have so many things to tell you about Kim, but I promised I would cut it down because she gets a little embarrassed when we talk about all the things she has done and, and is doing. Kim is currently executive director of Pride Action Tank. Her career spans public, private, and nonprofit sectors with a focus on collaborative approaches, advocacy, and project management. Pride Action Tank, uh, a program of the AIDS Foundation Chicago, is a social justice lab devoted to improving uh, outcomes and opportunities for LGBTQ and other marginalized communities. Uh, what none of this tells you is that Kim is also an awful lot of fun. And, and, and uh, I got to know Kim when she was executive director of Affinity Community Services, one of the great organizations of our community. 
and great supporters of Outspoken. There are a number of affinity people who are gotten tonight. Um, and I, out of the blue, called up Kim and said, Kim, I don't know if you remember we've met, but David Fink and I have this silly idea about doing some storytelling stuff. Are you familiar with storytelling? And she said, Art, I listen to The Moth all the time. I love storytelling. I've been hoping sometime in my life I would have a chance to be involved with storytelling. And from there on, here we are. So I want to welcome to our platform our dear friend, Miss Kim Hunt. from my place at 5500 South Hamilton Avenue to Mary's place at 7200 North Hamilton Avenue for our third date. She offered to cook dinner and I gladly accepted. At the time, I had two young daughters so I cooked all the time. It would be nice to have someone cook for me for a change. Mary greeted me at the door with a kiss and welcomed me inside. Her place was so quiet and orderly compared to mine, where the latent chaos of scheduled lives showed itself in the piles of unread mail, toys wedged between sofa cushions, and last night's dinner dishes still in the sink. Mary's place screamed order, with its trays for mail, hooks for keys, and immaculate wooden floors. Nearly finished newspapers and magazines were stacked like in photographs next to the sofa. We went into the kitchen where she handed me a glass of red wine. What can I do to help, I asked. Her kitchen was so clean. <laughs> Why don't you help me with the salad while the water boils for the pasta, she answered. As we sipped wine, the sound of chopping and peeling and shredding vegetables was the backbeat to our conversation about the work and life events that occurred in the week since we'd last seen each other. Mary added the pasta to the boiling water and poured us each another glass of wine as we kept talking. I liked the fact that Mary somehow drew me out in ways that I noticed only when I looked back on our time together. But what I noticed in this moment was that Mary and I had totally different cooking styles. <laughs> hmm. She must be one of those people who can only cook one thing at a time, I thought. I would have started making the pasta sauce before the water boiled so everything would be done at the same time. But there was no garlic or onion sauteing, no meat browning, no sauce simmering. I watched her drain the pasta, then open a cabinet door from which she took out a jar of prego pasta sauce. <laughs> to my amazement, she poured the sauce right from the jar onto the pasta. <laughs> You weren't going to add anything to that? It was more of an accusation than a question. <laughs> what would I add, she asked. Seasoning, I nearly shouted. <laughs> For those of you who don't know her, I should point out at this time that Mary is white. <laughs> so as an interracial couple, I knew that we'd have to work through some cultural differences. 
So I understood that I would not be getting my mother's spaghetti when I went to Mary's house for dinner, but damn! <laughs> Where are your spices, I asked. She pointed to the cabinet over the stove, salt, pepper, chili powder, and garlic powder. Not much to work with, but I had a full-time job and two kids. I knew how to make a decent meal out of, out of thin air. I sprinkled garlic powder on the salad and added the dressing and mixed it all in the salad bowl. Employing my mother's technique of a dash of this and a dash of that, I worked on that sauce until it had some flavor. <laughs> then we sat down to dinner. I watched Mary as she ate a forkful of salad. Oh my goodness, this salad is so good. She said, how did you do this? Then she tried the pasta. This is so good, she said with her mouth full. I never thought about seasoning the sauce before. <laughs> now, I appreciate a woman who loves food. As Mary ate and ate, I made two decisions. This was the woman I would spend the rest of my life with, and I would be the primary cook in this relationship. <laughs> <laughs> Within a few months, Mary joined the girls and me to visit my family in Kansas City, Missouri for Christmas. We were a few days early, but my mother had already started cooking for the holiday dinner, and she still managed to have dinner waiting for us when we arrived. Cooking was love to my mother. She made one of my favorite meals, spaghetti, salad, and toasted garlic bread. When I think about my mother, I often think about her spaghetti. Because she didn't measure anything, passing down the recipe was difficult. But I know what went in the sauce. Ground hamburger meat, smoked sausage, sauteed onions, garlic and bell peppers, one jar each of prego and ragu pasta sauce with meat. <laughs> chili powder, barbecue seasoning, salt, pepper, paprika, and a little sugar. That is way different from pasta with sauce right from the jar. <laughs> As I loaded my plate, I remembered, oh shit, Mary's a vegetarian. <laughs> I had forgotten to pass that information on to my mother, but I needn't have worried. Mary was already sitting at the table eating spaghetti like it was her last meal and she has hardly been a vegetarian since. <laughs> Mary and I moved in together after dating for a year. I would like to point that out, a year. <laughs> Which, as we know, is really late for a lesbian couple. But over time, we fell into a rhythm around household chores. She did a lot of the cleaning and took care of the car and the pets. I did most of the cooking, some of the cleaning, and the grocery shopping. And when my daughters were with us, Mary and I shared tasks of getting them to school, dance and swimming classes, medical appointments, and their social events. During trips to Kansas City, Mary would hang out in the kitchen with my mother, washing the dishes, serving as her sous chef, and just watching my mother work her magic. After my mother died nearly 10 years into our relationship, Mary would try her hand at making some of the dishes that we'd enjoyed at my mother's table. She'd surprise me by making greens or peach cobbler, even my mother's spaghetti. Initially, I was focused on what was missing, 
the flavor was off, the texture wasn't right. She drained all the grease off the meat. <laughs> grease is a critical ingredient for traditional soul food. I even felt angry that it was Mary who was trying to replicate my mother's cooking and not me. But at some point I saw the gift in Mary's culinary gestures. Around the time my oldest daughter went to college, Mary began taking cooking classes. She started with a knife sharpening class. Later she took classes for making appetizers and meats and root vegetables and more. My youngest daughter and I would devour the samples Mary brought home from each session and we were willing guinea pigs when she practiced at home. After a few classes, Mary let me know that students could bring a guest to one class in the series. Now I knew she was subtly asking me to come, but I resisted. After all, I already knew how to cook. <laughs> Plus I learned from the best, my mother. But I eventually stopped being a jerk about it and went with her. The class was in an industrial kitchen in the loop. Some of her classmates brought companions who actually looked happy to be there. I, on the other hand, was feeling a little cocky. After all, people did like my cooking. I didn't think I needed any help, but I put my ego in check soon after we were split into groups and started working on our assignments. My group was making a pasta dish. For the first time, I learned you aren't supposed to put oil in the pasta water to keep the noodles from sticking. I know, right? <laughs> I also learned to cook a vegetable I never heard of called Kobe Rob, and I had a ball. I know. <laughs> As her confidence grew, Mary started making appetizers for our dinner parties, then dinner a few times a week, and the occasional Sunday breakfast. Eventually, she was doing almost all the cooking. The transition was a little jarring at first, as my mother's daughter cooking had become my thing. It was a benchmark of my identity. But, and there's always a but, I had to admit, it was a blessing that Mary was cooking so much. I had a very demanding job that included attending meetings and events in the evenings and often on weekends. I became the person who asked what's for dinner when I got home from work. By the time my youngest daughter was finishing high school, Mary was doing all the grocery shopping and growing herbs on the kitchen windowsill. <laughs> Our kitchen cabinet was full of new seasonings like saffron, Himalayan pink salt, whole <laughs> nutmeg. And then there were the dry rubs and sauces Mary would concoct for fish and chicken. We had food I never ate as a child, like kale. <laughs> Roasted beets, feta cheese, braised lamb. Yes, Mary spoiled me. Last May, she started working for FEMA and was deployed to Durham, North Carolina from mid-May to September. After 18 years together, we suddenly found ourselves in a long-distance relationship. Because Mary worries that I won't have anything to eat when she's gone for a few days, she went into overdrive when she found out she'd be gone a few months. What do you think you'll want to eat while I'm away, she asked a few days before leaving. This was a hard question for me. Other than for special occasions, I haven't had to plan a meal in years. I don't know, babe, I said, easy stuff. She went to the store while I went to yet another event. 
When I got back, she gave me a tour of all the things she'd purchased, which was good, because I stopped looking for the things she puts away years ago. The day before she left, she made a big pan of lasagna. She sectioned off half of it into meal-sized portions that she froze in individual containers. So I'd have, I know the awe. <laughs> so I'd have easy meals when I needed them. Because I didn't have much of a work-life balance, I didn't get through the frozen lasagna until sometime in July. And <laughs> I know it's sad. <laughs> and the groceries lasted quite a while too. One night at dinner time, I opened the refrigerator and this is what I saw. A jar of olives, milk, orange juice, condiment packets from takeout, and a container that had contents I no longer recognized. <laughs> so I made a meal out of thin air. When the pot of water was boiling, I poured in the pasta. When it was done, I drained it, poured on a little pasta sauce from the jar, <laughs> and sat down to dinner. There is an epilogue to this story. <laughs> so Mary's current deployment is in St. Croix, the US Virgin Islands. And tomorrow I'm going to see her for the first time since Thanksgiving week. Oh. Yeah. And aside from me, one of the things she misses most about being in Chicago is outspoken. So I want you to indulge me for just a moment. <laughs> and what I want you to do is, on the count of three, just say, hi, Mary, from Outspoken, okay? One, two, three. Hi, Mary, from Outspoken. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> We like to take a minute at Outspoken to remind ourselves that queer folks are not a modern aberration. LGBTQI folks have existed for thousands of years. Last summer, many of us took to the streets over and over in nonviolent protests. Emphasis on nonviolent, unless you're a cop. Where did we learn the art of nonviolent protest? In December of 1955, after Rosa Parks performed one of the most famous acts of nonviolent protest, refusing to give up her seat on the bus, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave the green light to boycott Montgomery Public Transit. Shortly after, his house was firebombed. Angry people gathered outside his house, and Dr. King said, If you have weapons, take them home. If you do not have them, please do not seek them. We cannot solve this problem through retaliatory violence. We must meet violence with nonviolence. Dr. King learned this tactic of nonviolent protest from his advisor, Bayard Rustin. Rustin was a gay, socialist, pacifist man of color. Rustin studied the methods of nonviolent resistance in West Africa and India, where he met with Ghanaian and Nigerian leaders. He was raised as a Quaker and kicked out of HBCU, Wilberforce University, for organizing a strike in 1936. He then went to Harlem and protested against the conviction of the Scottsboro Boys, 
a case quite similar to the exonerated Central Park Five. Rustin then worked with Socialist Party members in the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, like legendary A. Philip Randolph. Bayard Rustin organized Freedom Rides and was arrested for refusing to give up his bus seat. He was also jailed for refusing to be drafted to war. He then organized protests in jail against the segregated dining hall. Later, he was arrested again for lewd conduct, sex with a man. This arrest tarnished his reputation with the civil rights movement. His most influential essay, Speak Truth to Power, A Quaker Search for an Alternative to Violence, was written anonymously so that his sexuality wouldn't taint his important message. After this, Dr. King sought Bayard Rustin out for help with the Montgomery bus boycott. And shortly after, they established the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. But of course, as they began making progress, one of their own board members, a congressman, forced Rustin to resign by threatening to talk about his lewd conduct arrest in Congress, and even said he'd spread a rumor that Rustin and Dr. King were having an affair if Rustin didn't resign. He did resign. But after several protests against racism in 1963 across the country and two black students were refused entrance into the University of Alabama and President Kennedy gave a live speech about racial violence in the U.S., Dr. King decided it was time to march on Washington. And the only man to organize it was Bayard Rustin. Bayard Rustin arranged off-duty police, bus captains to direct traffic. He planned the speakers. He worked with officials who called for thousands of National Guard and local cops to be on standby. And Rustin made sure the entire event would be a nonviolent march so that police weren't necessary. The March on Washington was even attended by more than double their expectation. 250,000 people came, and it was completely peaceful. The executive director of the Committee for the March on Washington the man who organized this whole thing, Mr. Bayard Rustin. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I have come here to introduce to you the woman who started our modern struggle for freedom. And when Rosa Parks sat down, a revolution broke forth. Rosa Parks! Bayard Rustin and A. Philip Randolph appeared on the cover of Life magazine the next month. Inside, a photo of Bayard Rustin was captioned, Out of the Shadows. What do you say? The last storyteller of this night is uh, someone who I adore and have known for years and have worked really closely with over the, the last year uh, on a project and have uh, learned to adore her even more. Uh, Shannon Lynn Parker is a human rights advocate, public speaker, community-centric leader, and she is the director of strategic partnerships for Howard Brown Health Center, which puts her in the executive suite, so to speak. Um, she serves on the board of Equality Illinois as well. And prior to her current role at Howard Brown, Shannon was the manager of the Broadway Youth Center's Youth Development Program. And before that, she was the manager of Chicago House Social Service Agency's Trans Life Project. Shannon is the first openly transgender woman to work in the Cook County Department of Corrections, working with populations in protective custody. 
Shannon is a recent recipient of the Henrietta Lacks Award, Women in Health in Chicago, and Equality Illinois' prestigious Humanitarian Freedom Award. Let us welcome Shannon to our virtual stage. So my bio reads as follows, aside from the one that Kim just read. Quintessential awkward black girl with a voracious appetite for cherry danishes and orange sodas. To my colleagues' peculiar awe and wonder, I can simultaneously respond to a set of emails and manage to polish off an entire Danish in one sitting. <laughs> I grew up in a modest community in a suburban enclave. I come from a long line of Southern women, Louisiana to be exact. Imagine Steel Magnolias, but the remake where Queen Latifah plays Malin and Alfre Woodard is Weezer. <laughs> Amongst my many predilections and peculiarities, I love tulle and pleated skirts. My go-to fragrance is Black Orchid by Tom Ford and on occasion Portrait of a Lady by Friedrich Mahl. I hate ice cream. There's something about its milky texture that reminds me of sweetened phlegm going down my throat. And should you ever see me at the bar, please know that my favorite cocktail is a gin gimlet with Hendrix, please, and a twist of lime and an olive. I have the worst case of imposter syndrome. So much so that at times I walk into my own home and I look around and I say to myself, whoa, like I actually live here. Some more fun facts about me. I've never tasted coffee or beer. And I am the world's oldest living shampoo girl. Now, I know some of y'all are wondering and there is no documented evidence of me holding this record for being the world's oldest living shampoo girl. But what I can tell you is this, for 12 years of my life, from the age of 17 to 30, Wednesday through Saturday, was an endless stream of soapy water, scalp massages, and blow dries. Interestingly enough though, this period in my life had a rather Charles Dickens quality to it. In many ways, it was truly the best of times and the worst of times. $5 a head for what at moments was backbreaking work, $10 for eyebrows. I was fortunate enough to work in salons with clientele of well-heeled women. So needless to say, I made good tips. I've seen it all from dandruff that rivaled the blizzard of 2011 to the more tender of scalps requiring a delicate touch. I've been entrusted with the most salacious of secrets while deliciously creating a few of my own. And I bring all of this up to say, being a shampoo girl not only supported me in the invaluable development of who I am today, but being a shampoo girl more than likely saved my life. For a young trans woman, the beauty shop provided a safe haven for my transition. 
I was largely insulated from the insult and injury that lay waiting for trans people on the outside world. There was a safety amongst the clucking brood of mother hens who at times admonished me, but also stood watch, ready to cover me with their protective feathers if need be. Before allyship was, a, was the widely used word that it has become today, these women of the salon would challenge anyone who would dare misgender me or not respect my identity. They were my advocates, even when I wasn't looking. Once a client during one of my off days refused to acknowledge me by my correct pronouns with a wet head and all, she was escorted, you know what, better yet, ran out of the salon by not only the stylist, but the clients who knew me well. What I have come to learn was that the beauty shop prepared me for the advocacy that I do today. There in those most hollowed of walls, I learned the gospel of life as taught to me by those stylists and so many others. Lesson number one, you must be adaptable. Working in the salon full of hairstylists, all unique in expectation and personality, taught me the invaluable skill of being nimble. Never get too comfortable in your present skill set, because what might be mastery for one is not mastery for all. Actively listen and observe. Lesson number two, good manners will take you where money won't. In each encounter lies the opportunity to be the recipient to a wealth of knowledge. Treat everyone who comes before you with kindness and respect because you never know who is sitting in front of you or who they will become. Lesson number three, be trustworthy. If these walls could talk is an understatement. If someone is entrusting you with valuable pieces of their lives, consider that to be an honor, a gift not to be accepted lightly. These were the women who juggled the pressures of home and career, who more times than not had no idea of what they wanted done to their hair, but the one thing she always wanted for the few hours that she was there was only to laugh, gossip, and escape. But most of all, she wanted to feel safe. The beauty shop was my first example of holistic care. For a variety of reasons, therapy just wasn't always an option for these women. So I, along with the stylist, became a sort of talk therapy. And during these informal therapeutic sessions, she could pause from the daily demands and obsessions for her to perform her regimented duties. There she could rest her eyes from the glare of her computer. And it was there she had the right to rejoice, discuss, complain, or, or even choose silence. It was there an exchange was bonded and a formed friendship was created. Lesson number four, there will always be a critic. As I was eloquently taught by master stylist Tania Ritchie, what are you gonna do? Tape their mouths shut? You can't stop anyone from talking bad about you? Fuck them. She also taught me this, that everyone loves a sale. Know your value and then add tax. And the lesson that we would all be best served to never forget, 
you wash clothes, you shampoo hair. <laughs> Lesson number five, I am a healer. It's amazing how a head massage can magically take away the stress of a long work week and how the application of a conditioning mask can act as a healing salve. The beauty shop taught me that there are hidden gems in anyone that only need be brought out. There was an unknown kinship that the clients and I shared because while they were there to escape, so was I. I was there to escape my parents' clumsy mishandling of my pronouns and the dull virtue of tolerance, which was sharper than any knife that lingered in my home. When I lost friends at the hands of violence over the weekends while I was safe in the salon, it was these women who with their pillow soft arms embraced me and held me up. Some of my most treasured memories are in the beauty shop. I, I still remember the honeymoon tanned brides radiating with love, proudly sharing their wedding photos for all to see. Gloria Vanderbilt jeans had made a brief comeback and for Christmas, one of the stylists who I worked for bought me a pair with the feathers on the back pocket. Sharon, a mother who after weeks of mourning finally gathered her strength to practice a moment of self-care. I can still see the closed eyelids and the rocking of bodies as she was greeted with strong and silent hugs. And Laura, who when she got home somehow managed to mistakenly spray bug spray in her hair instead of hairspray, needless to say she had to come back to the salon. We had a good laugh and went back to the drawing board. There is no formal institution that could have prepared me and taught me the skills that I possess today. And yes, while I still know the best formulation to cover stubborn gray, I learned an even greater alchemy. One where I am able to take your worries, your dreams, frustration, and even the lack of words and turn them into something beautiful. This prepared me for the work that now requires me to see the masterpiece in us all. So before I close, some of you may be wondering, what happened for me to end my streak for being the oldest living shampoo girl in the world? Well, as life would have it, I got fired. <laughs> so I had this stool that was passed down to me from a previous stylist and one day the salon owner's jerk kid decided to carve the ass seat on my stool. And instead of taking accountability for their kids' action, they met my disapproval with determination. So there I was, first time in over a decade, no longer a shampoo girl. But like the caped wonders black women are, they came to the rescue. So for the next year from my mother's basement, I did eyebrows and hair. Those very same women packed my mother's home weekly and banded together to sustain me. Janelle, a longtime eyebrow client said to me, we come here for you, not for the salon. We love you. A year later, while at a University of Chicago event, a member of staff approached me and said, I, I don't know what it is, but I have a good feeling about you. 
I like to offer you a small position if you're interested. A year after that, I became a linkage secure specialist at Chicago House Social Service Agency. A year later, I became the manager of the TransLife project for the same agency. And during that time, I became the first openly transgender woman to work inside of the Cook County Department of Corrections, where the salon owner who fired me also worked. And when we locked eyes, my posture said, I am still standing. I am still here. I later went on to manage the youth development program at the Broadway Youth Center. And today, I am a program director at Howard Brown Health and a member of the executive leadership team. So the next time you are at a salon, think of me and give the shampoo assistant a big tip because you just never know who they may become. Thank you all so much for listening. And no matter how far I go, my roots will always be at the shampoo bowl. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. If you've got a moment, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes and subscribe now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. Daryl Heller recorded his story in November 2016, Kim L. Hunt in February 2018, and Shannon Lynn Parker at one of our Zoom shows in August 2020. Outspoken is hosted by Art Johnston and Kim L. Hunt, curated by Archie Jamjun. Artistic director is David Fink. Stage manager is Brad Bailoff. Story collector, Ray Teresi. Audiovisual tech, Brian Smith. The podcast is produced by me, Devlin Camp. Hi. If you like my history segments, check out my queer history podcast. It's called Queer Serial, and you can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. It's the serialized story of queer liberation in America from the beginning to Stonewall. Outspoken takes place the first Tuesday of every month at Sidetrack and is audio recorded in front of a live audience. Join us for our virtual shows during the pandemic on the first Tuesday of every month on Zoom. Sidetrack is dedicated to providing entertainment and hospitality in a respectful, safe, and inclusive space for the LGBTQ community. Find out more at SidetrackChicago.com. You can find more information about Outspoken at SidetrackChicago.com slash OutspokenChicago. Music is by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution 4.0. See you next time. Bye. I take great pleasure and pride in introducing to you a person who needs no introduction, Miss Lena Horn. And be sure she means every word of it. <laughs>